Thank you, James. Good morning. If you have a Bible or an electronic device with a Bible app on it, would you please go to Paul's letter to the Colossians? It starts on page 416 in the Oral Roberts large print edition or wherever you can find it. But go to Colossians and please hold your place there while we pray again real quick. Father, I pray that you would really help us clear our minds this morning, clear our palates, and to hear from your book. Please help us ingest your words, and we're trusting that your Holy Spirit is here now and is going to make these things alive to us. Capture our hearts for a few minutes as we look at your word. Amen. Okay, Colossians 1. Read with me if you don't mind. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father. There's a group of Christians, a thriving, growing church at the town of Colossae that's threatened by a number of the things that would get them to swerve away from the true gospel message of Jesus. <coughs> Sorry. Um, the message of Jesus and him alone. And for 2,000 years plus, how many of you know that we believers have been challenged to stay Christ-focused? There's always some kind of temptation to do that, isn't there? There's always something around that wants to make us swerve away from Jesus. It makes me think of uh, back in the 70s. It actually started in the 60s. Do you remember the Jesus movement? Sometimes during the, uh, this time period, the traditional denominational churches and others would minimalize the Jesus folk. How could a bunch of smelly hippies ever have a real relationship with God that's worth anything, especially one that would make a difference in this world? Some of you were a part of that movement. I was about four, so I don't think I was part of it. I was probably influenced by that movement. But the interesting thing was there genuinely wasn't a uh, focus on Jesus. It was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus during that time. Interestingly, to the point that some critical-minded folk would state things like, all they have is Jesus. Well, what else do you need but Jesus, right? If all you have is Jesus, then you have all you need. Well, the Colossian church had Jesus. They were following Jesus. Most of them were Gentiles. And Paul was telling them, hey, don't swerve. All you have is Jesus, and all you need is Jesus. But why did he tell them this? Well, there had crept into the minds of some of the believers at Colossae a belief system, sometimes called the Colossian heresy, really for lack of a better term. It's not technically correct, but it was kind of a hybrid belief system from different strains that were causing the Colossians to swerve away from the true gospel of Christ. Part of it was Jewish legalism. You have to be circumcised and you have to carefully keep the law of Moses. And Paul dealt with that um, pretty severely in some of his other letters. Part of this heresy, as we call it, was called Gnostic mysticism. Some of you have probably heard of these guys, the Gnostics. I'll talk more about them in just a second. So part of it was Jewish legalism, part of it was Gnosticism, and part 
religious asceticism, which is kind of a cool word. That is, if I deny myself certain pleasures, certain things in life, God will like me more. He will love me more. I'll be closer to God, so I'm going to treat myself harshly. But this kind of stuff, honestly, is probably born out of pride because really you see how harshly I'm treating myself and you say, oh, that guy's holy. And really, that's how I want you to think about me. Now back to mysticism in the Gnostic thought. The Greek word here, as you may know, means is, it comes from gnosis, which means knowledge. And these folks believed everything spiritual is good and everything in the material world is evil. So God couldn't have really created the material world because it's evil and he's good. So how did that work? The Gnostics also thought that Jesus was not God, but he was more of a heavenly messenger. A human deity that, that uh, a human that deity came upon, but at some point the deity left him. He was only a phantom that kind of looked human. Gnosticism had all kinds of weird made up stuff like this. Lots of focus on the mystical and they were really into mystery and, and mysterious stuff. Well, that belief system had become really prevalent and was creeping into the church at Colossae. Many of you remember that Paul, in your church history, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. While he was in Ephesus, the whole region was evangelized. Colossae is about 100 miles from Ephesus. It's, okay, hold on. Ephesus, Colossae. So it's 100 miles. Should have brought a map, sorry. Just for, you know, <laughs> visuals. But while Paul was in Ephesus during those three times, or those three years, a guy named Epaphras, or Epaphras, depending on how you like to say it, Epaphras, he listened to Paul, he latched onto the gospel, and he started a church in Colossae. That church grew into a church body that was flourishing, and Epaphras became the founding pastor of that body of believers. Well, fast forward a few years, these weird beliefs had begun to infiltrate the church at Colossae, so Epaphras goes to visit Paul in Rome, where Paul's been locked up. You remember that Paul had a habit of going to jail for talking about Jesus, right? And during his time in Rome, of course, he wrote what we call the prison epistles, which includes Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. Well, Epaphras gives Paul the lowdown on what's going on in Colossae, and he says, Paul, we got some problems. So Paul pens this letter gives it to Epaphras, and he takes it back to the church at Colossae. Okay, there's your background. Let's jump right in, okay? Verse 3, if you don't mind. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in this same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And let me say, Epaphras is really one of the unsung heroes in Scripture. There's hundreds of them, but like Epaphras, this guy not only founded the church at Colossae, but Paul praises him as a giant in prayer, a guy who really knew how to lay it all before the Lord 
and genuinely care for his people at Colossae. Okay, verse 9, let's go back into the text. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power and according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in his inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. What an amazing verse. Now, notice some key words in that passage we just read. Paul uses the word, look at here, knowledge. Right? He mentions it in verse 9 and again in verse 10. Then the word wisdom. How about spiritual understanding? Those are significant. These are buzzwords that the Gnostics would use commonly. And remember, Gnostic means knowledge. And so one of the main themes in Gnostic thought was the idea of tapping into a deeper knowledge, a special understanding. Oh, you too can have special insight if you just tap into this super cool mystery knowledge that may or may not have any validity at all. So Paul really intentionally uses these words, spiritual understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. Okay, back to the text. But let me say, Paul launches into this next section with no introduction at all. He doesn't even set it up for us, but it's so cool. Look at verse 15. Bam! The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Imagine if you never heard that before. It's like, what? That's awesome. If you can think about any awesome text, that's it to me. Well, this part is really probably the central core of the letter to the Colossians. That part is really a poem that demonstrates that Jesus is exalted above everything, right? He is God. He's not like God. He is God. But why does Paul set it like this? Remember, the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and certainly they didn't believe he was God. And the Gnostics believed that Jesus was, at best, an emanation of God, a godlike thing. But Paul confounds all of this thinking by saying, Jesus is the image of God. The word here is icon. Very familiar with that word, I'm sure, meaning he is the exact representation or likeness of the invisible creator of the universe. Notice the next key word in that part that we just read. He is the firstborn of all creation. 
this trips up some folks in that firstborn here doesn't really have anything to do with order of birth. Paul is stating Jesus is first in rank. Jesus is first in importance. Again in verse 18 from that section, he is the firstborn from among the dead. He's not the first person to come back from the dead. The Old Testament's full of people that came back from the dead. But he is the most important person that was ever dead and then not dead. Jesus said it like this. If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. And again, incredibly bold statement. Before Abraham was, I am the gall of that guy. Is this making sense? Paul is directly confronting Gnosticism. He's directly confronting mysticism. So let's jump to chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, some very key words in that passage, complete understanding, the mystery of God, and hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Doesn't this make sense against the background of Gnostic mysticism, of that kind of thinking? Oh, you have to buy into our philosophy. If you do, you'll get wisdom and knowledge. And guess what Paul is saying? Uh, nope, you don't need any of that. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is everything we need. Amen? Now Paul just says it head on. Look at verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. So there's no question about what he's doing now, right? He just says, yep. And then jump to verse 8 in that same passage. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness or completion. It's probably a good idea to be on high alert anytime somebody says to you, you're doing okay, but you need more, and I have what you need. Even well-meaning folks, even folks that maybe are close to you. You may recall a few weeks ago, Bill encouraged us to be on the lookout for special revelation, but rather to hold fast to Jesus by surrendering ourselves to the absolute authority of the Bible alone, of God's word revealing Jesus. Again, in Jesus, we have everything we need, and we are complete in him. Jump down to verse 10. I guess you don't have to jump. Let's go to verse 10. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, 
and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul talked a lot about Jewish law, didn't he? Especially in Romans. He says the law shows us how really bad we are. Thus, there is a debt of sin that we cannot possibly pay. But Jesus nailed everything we owed to God to the cross. He paid it for us. Thank you, Jesus. Let's look at verse 16. Therefore, don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or new moon celebration or Sabbath day. These are only a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And skip down to verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental forces, spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to this world do you submit to its rules? Don't handle. Don't taste. Don't touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It is Christ alone who saves, not rituals, not ceremonies. It is only Jesus. And look back at verse 20 again. Paul challenges us. Why would anybody settle for less? If you can have authentic Jesus, why would you settle for ceremonies or rituals? Again, settling for something less than Jesus alone. How about baptism? How about church membership? How about church attendance? Well, why do people, some folks, present company excluded, settle for things that are not the authentic Jesus? One writer says it this way, and this is, this is interesting to me. Mankind is incurably addicted to working for his own salvation. Surely there's something I can do to contribute to my eternal well-being, right? Our only contribution is to sin, and we do that really well without even thinking about it. That's the truth of it. And yet we can say, I believe in you, Jesus. Please make me clean and make me one of your own. And when we believe, when we make that transition, as all of you know, he takes us from the dark side and puts us in his kingdom. Thank God we have a rescuer, don't we? A really smart guy sums up the first letter of this. I wanted to include this because it sounds really smart. The resounding theme in Colossians first half is the preeminence and sufficiency of Christ in all things. The believer is complete in him alone and lacks nothing because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is Lord over creation, including the invisible realm. He has redeemed his people, enabling them to participate in his death, in his resurrection, and fullness of life. Wow, that's what Colossians is trying to tell us. Let's go on to chapter 3. Okay, let me just say before we jump into chapter 3, Paul has given us all this stuff about Jesus, right? But as his habit is, 
he says, okay, now here's what to do with it. So let's look at chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of this stuff, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of such naughtiness as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Skip down to verse 12 with me. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive each other. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Isn't that amazing imagery? Because we're chosen by the Father, we can clothe ourselves with his nature and relate to one another with real holiness, with genuine, real love. Now jump down in the chapter 3 to verse 18 for me. Wives, submit to your husbands, which is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is upon you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, do it all with, your, do it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Paul does this in both Ephesians and here in Colossians. He goes to the home. Why? He wants to show what transformed humanity looks like in a first century Roman home that's been touched by the gospel. He goes to the basic element of society. He shows us what a Christian household looks like. There's no part of life that isn't affected by Jesus. He touches everything. Now remember, Roman househeads had complete authority over the home. But Christian families submit to each other because they submit to Jesus. The point is here, for all of these roles that he's just listed, the focus is on Jesus. He should be preeminent in everything. Your marriage, your relationship to your wife, raising your children, your work. Now finally, we come to the fourth chapter. But we're not going to read it, so don't get excited. Just know in the fourth chapter that Paul lists out 11 folks that are instrumental in his life and ministry. Some of them have super cool names. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus. I mean, those are cool, right? Onesimus, by the way, was a Colossian who ran away from Philemon. Later, Paul helped them repair their relationship. There's John Mark. There's another Jesus, not Jesus the Christ, who's called Justice. Epaphras, the guy that started the church, Luke the physician, and Demas, who kind of went off the rails a little bit later. 
Paul knew that he couldn't do anything without good help, right? And so the point is, in mentioning all these folks, keep a lot of skilled people around you. Don't insulate yourself from other believers, but keep them close to you. We're almost done, so thanks for hanging with me. Collapse in the Christian life is seldom a blowout. It is usually a slow leak. When somebody falls, it probably begins with some swerving. I used that word earlier, swerving. Think of a car going out of its lane, maybe. Well, we can think of Colossians, this beautiful letter, like those little grooves on the side of the road that are given to keep us from swerving off the road. You know how this works. You get off the road a little bit, especially in Missouri, and... Well, that's kind of like Colossians. Life for the believer is Jesus and Jesus alone. He's not, not some teacher with a new truth, not a special revelation, not a religion or a system or an ideology. Is just Jesus. That's what this letter does. In a sense, it provides us a safe place to continually refocus on Jesus and him alone. Now... It takes less than 15 minutes to recite Colossians. Eh? That's not super long, right? 15 minutes. In fact, technically, I think it's 13.8 minutes. <laughs> so I'm hoping that you'll try something on your own when we leave here. Would you be willing to read Colossians from start to finish three or four times? Maybe this week, maybe over the next month. And it helps to have a partner, so maybe do that. But it's just 15 minutes. We can do that, right? Well, there just happens to be a stack of printed copies of the letter right down here. These are specially crafted line-by-line editions of Colossians provided by Dr. Hallett Hollinger. So these are officially ORU-sanctioned. You are invited to help yourself to these copies, and if we run out, I'll make some more. But I really hope you'll take this challenge. Now, let me say a few months back, um, Hallett actually brought this idea to our house group. We examined the letter to the Colossians as a whole, and the result really was a profound shift in our relationship to this letter. (coughs) I feel like some of us, especially me, moved from maybe being familiar with some key verses in Colossians, you know, you think of it, oh, that's a great Christological passage, and he's rescued us from darkness. But I moved to more of, I feel like, a better solid, a more solid footing, at least where this letter is concerned, and really having a better understanding of not only who Jesus is, but what an enhanced view of what devotion to him really looks like. Because taken all together, I think the Lord really makes it alive in your heart. So I'm hoping that you'll take this opportunity to sort of marinate in Colossians for yourself, maybe sometime soon. I hope this week you can do that. And maybe take a fresh approach to Colossians, like you'd never heard it before, if you decide to go through the challenge. I know it's going to be meaningful and profitable because, again, God will make his word alive to you. Believe that? Amen. Let's pray together. 
Father, we're relying on you to make your word alive. We're so desperate to have your word inside of us as part of us, showing us how to be and what to do. We pray these words about Jesus will just become alive to us. Thank you, Lord, for making this rich and true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.